You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Stephanie Lansom writes historical fiction for women about women. She's traveled the world in real life and traveled through time in her research and imagination. As she's learned about women of the past, she's come to realize that these long-ago women were very much like us. They loved, dreamed, and made mistakes. They struggled, failed, and triumphed. She writes to honor their lives and to bring today's women hope and encouragement. Stephanie makes her home in Minnesota with her husband, two cats, and a dog, and the frequent visits from her four adult children. Along with reading, writing, and research, she dreams about her next travel adventure, whether it be in person or on the page. So Stephanie Lansom, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thanks for having me. It is so great to have you on the show. I absolutely fell in love with your last release in a far off land. And I was really impressed with your ability to just layer those characters in those books, especially the heroine Minerva. And she's loosely based on the prodigal son from the Bible. So I was wondering, what biblical story or character do you feel you can relate to in life? Well, I don't think you'd be very surprised to hear that I relate a lot to that parable of the prodigal son. It's always been my favorite. I'm not sure if you are aware, I did three biblical fiction novels. Those are my first published novels. And while I was researching my biblical characters, I love all of those characters also, but I just kept coming back to the prodigal son parable that Jesus told because it's so, it is so layered. There's so much going on in that. It seems like every time I read it, I relate to a different person. Like sometimes I relate to the prodigal son. It's like, okay, I'm coming back to the father. I need forgiveness and mercy again. Or I relate to the father sometimes, you know, we have adult children and we want them to come back. (laughs) So sometimes it's him. And then sometimes it's that brother who's kind of self-righteous and thinks that he's the good guy and that everybody should be like him. So I would say that that story has always got something for me and somebody to, to, that I can relate to. And I think that it relates to like multi-generational. I read a book once about generational gaps in Christian community and how much that the young man, that's just kind of the headstrong youth. And then you have this adult and that's the the brother and then the father, the wise elder, so to speak. And that's awesome how that parable relates to where People tend to be in different stages of life. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Yes, I love that scripture. And it's interesting that you should mention how you relate to different characters at different times. But that's cool because we wouldn't really expect any less of a story that Jesus gave us. It would be multidimensional. So that's cool. Yeah, it really is. Well, you travel often and I have actually been seeing some pretty cool pictures on your social media recently. So can you tell us about where you traveled and what kind of things you saw? Yeah, I'm really fortunate. I have been able to go a lot of places. Luckily, my husband also has kind of the travel bug and we've gone a lot of places. My kids like to travel. So this most recent one, I went to Southeast Asia with my daughter, Anna, who is graduating from college this year. And I just know 
that she's going to be busy with her life. And I wanted to spend some time with her, like some real one-on-one time. So we went to Cambodia and to Thailand. So I would never have chosen those. That seems a little scary to me to go to Asia. And to tell you the truth, I was a little nervous. Um, But I happened to also have family there. So we went and visited them, which was fun and awesome. They live in Cambodia. And then we went to Thailand on our own. And yeah, it was awesome. We saw beautiful nature. I would say this trip was just the wonder of God's creation when it comes to the, the sea and rock formations and just the beauty of some of these these places in the world that he's made. It was it was awesome. Like it it created just that sense of awe when you looked at it. So that's what I mostly um took from this trip was that just that gorgeous beauty and creativeness of God in those in those little corners of the world. Oh, that's so cool because this world is so big and it's full of so many beautiful things he made. And so it that's wonderful that you got to go and experience that. And I'm glad you shared the pictures because we got to travel along with you just a little bit. So that was fun. How would you say that travel and experiencing things in real life affect the stories that you write? You know, I don't know. A lot of people have asked me that. And I mean, it's just a rich experience in so many ways. Travel, you have like this varied emotions, you know, there's wonder and awe, but then also there's like some fear of the unknown and discomfort and being way out of your comfort zone. And I think all those things help you when you're writing, because when your character is out of her comfort zone or afraid of something, you can tap into that. And so it makes it maybe a little easier. It's never easy to write emotions for me, but a little easier when I've experienced something like that. But also characters, you meet such interesting people when you travel. (laughs) It's just, it's just, a, just a, like so many things. You can look, just picture somebody and when you're needing some character quirks or some unusual dialogue or something, I always go back to people that I've met in airports or traveling or, you know, in different places and you can always find something there. Yes, I guess travel has a way of pulling people from just random places and then throwing them all in one location. Yeah, very much so. Now, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Yeah, you know what I like to speak of to my readers? It always goes back to God's mercy, like to Jesus' infinite mercy. That's why I love the prodigal son. It's so much about mercy. I think in even in my biblical fiction, those were my themes of Jesus is never going to get tired of forgiving us and asking us to come back and trying to show us his father. So I would say that that's probably my thought that's behind everything I write. And that's the thing that I just wish I could tell everybody, you know, Jesus is so merciful. Do not ever be afraid to go to him. That's kind of my message. I can see how that shines through in your previous book. And what a great message, especially in our just kind of our times and our day and age. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes people think of God as demanding and justice. And there is God's justice, obviously, but his mercy is what he wants us to remember. Yes. I think we can be so quick to evaluate ourselves and each other on performance. You know, how well are you doing at your job, with your relationships? Are you hitting milestones? Do you take control of your life, et cetera? 
And these may be good things for us to pursue, but it can be so easy to tire worth up in this performance and even transfer that into our relationship with God. If we're not performing well, we can't talk to Him. If we're slipping, then we can't go to Him. When, like you say, He's merciful, He just wants us to come, and and His grace is always there for us. Yeah, yeah, very true. Well, let's go ahead and get into your new story here, Codename Edelweiss. In the summer of 1933, a man named Adolf Hitler is the new and powerful anti-Semitic chancellor of Germany. But in Los Angeles, no-nonsense secretary Liesel Weiss has concerns much closer to home. The Great Depression is tightening its grip and Liesel is the sole supporter of two children, an opinionated mother and a troubled brother. Leon Lewis is a Jewish lawyer who has watched Adolf Hitler's rise to power and the increase in anti-Semitism in America with growing alarm. He believes Nazi agents are working to seize control of Hollywood, the greatest propaganda machine the world has ever known. The trouble is, authorities scoff at his dire warnings. When Liesel loses her job at MGM, her only choice is to work with Leon Lewis and the mysterious Agent 13 to spy on her friends and neighbors in her German-American community. What Leon Lewis and his spies find is more chilling and more dangerous than any of them suspected. Codename Edelweiss is based on a true story, unknown until recent years. How a lone Jewish lawyer and a handful of amateur spies discovered and foiled Adolf Hitler's plan to take over Hollywood. Wow. Adolf Hitler had influences in Hollywood? I had no idea. The thought alone is just terrifying. Why was Hollywood a target for Hitler? Yeah, I mean, it is shocking when you when you read that. It, it reminds me, just reading the back cover of the book reminds me of when I first ran into this this idea and this historical event. And I thought, oh, no, like, this cannot be true. Like, people wouldn't know about this. This has to be made up. And then the more I researched it, the more I was like, yeah, it actually happened. And we don't know about it, which was just the fascinating premise of that novel. And I knew I had to write about it. So Hollywood was a target for Hitler because it had such an ability to reach people. Like The film industry was just exploding in popularity and everybody wanted to watch movies. And Hitler was a brilliant propagandist. I mean, I think we know that now. He and his circle of Nazis, they were just really great at getting their message out to people and twisting it and so that people would believe them and follow this like evil plan of his. He just thought, he just knew Hollywood would be a great way for him to get that message out. And he started that very early in the 30s, right after he became chancellor. I mean, it is smart because we are influenced by the stories that we see and read, but sometimes visual media can be really, really striking, you know, and really bring something home. They do say that the film The Birth of a Nation in, I think, 1915, around then was when it was made, they credit it with restarting the Ku Klux Klan. And it was just one movie. So I guess as much as even though we don't know about it, Hitler was very aware of the potential here. So Absolutely. Yeah, he knew what he needed, what he wanted. Um, and then the other side of it was he also knew that uh, much of Hollywood, many of the executives and a lot of the more popular actors were Jewish. And so, of course, that just made it more of a target for him because he wanted 
the Jewish side of Hollywood out of there. And he wanted to be able to put his own ideas in as many of those films as he could. So were any of the characters in Codename Edelweiss based on real characters? Yeah, and that was the fun part of writing. A lot of the characters were actual people. And I did a whole bunch of research on what they did and how they acted. Um, We have a lot of information about them, thanks to Leon Lewis. He's a real person. And then he went out and looked for spies to help him. And he looked for German-Americans. People who could speak German were ideal because he wanted them to infiltrate some of these more German social clubs and and German-American community organizations. So he looked for Christians and he looked for people who could speak German. So I took several of the spies and kind of changed them slightly to make my characters, especially Liesel and Agent 13. But then the Nazis, there are based on almost all the real people that were running the Friends of New Germany at the time. So yeah, it was really fun to just use those real characters in the book. Oh, wow. And that's part of sometimes what makes research so fun when you can bring in those historical characters. And then as a reader, I know whenever I read them and I'm like, wait, that was a real person, you know, like a a secondary character in a book. I'll go and Google them and look at where they lived and what they did. And yeah, it really is just fascinating. And you have to be a little more careful when you write that way because you don't want to misrepresent a historical person. But in this case, the characters themselves were better than anything I could come up with in my imagination. They were just like kind of larger than life on their own. So it worked really well for this book. Oh, that's awesome. Makes me even more excited to read this story, knowing these people actually lived. That's neat. So how did you marry the espionage element of this book with the genre specifics of historical romance? Well, you know, that's interesting because I rarely think of genre when I'm writing. When I started writing and I did biblical fiction, it didn't even occur to me to like look at the genre of biblical fiction to see, you know, you know, what kind of elements were in it. I just wrote the book. And I think that was good because then you don't feel like you're following some kind of a plan or a cookie cutter or whatever. And I really love Tyndale because they just gave me free reign. I told them about this. I was super excited when I got the idea for this book. And I just presented it on the phone and I said, this is what I'd like to write. And they're like, go do it. Like, let us know what you come up with. (laughs) And so, I mean, in a way it's like, wait a minute, aren't you going to like, give, you know, give me some more input. <laughs> then on another level, it was really nice to just have that kind of carte blanche to say, okay, I'm going to write this. And it's going to be a spy novel. It's going to be Christian fiction. It's going to be historical. It's going to have a little bit of romance in it. Probably not enough to, to classify it as a romance novel. But I always have a little romance in my books. And so, yeah, it was just kind of a mishmash of a lot of things. And I was nervous when I sent it off to my editor and I thought, oh my gosh, like this really isn't anything specific to to genres, but they didn't mind. They loved it. So that is so cool. I didn't think too much about it. And that was probably best. Yeah. Just let your creativity shape the story. So what kind of writer things are you doing in the future? Wow, I wish I knew. (laughs) That's the other thing that I'm not very good at. I'm a slow writer, and I'm very slow to decide, except for this book, 
weirdly, Codename Edelweiss came to me like in a flash over a course of like two days. And between learning about it and getting the okay from Tyndale was really like less than a week. Everything else I do takes me a lot of time and I mull things over a lot. Right now I do have a a story that I'm thinking about, but I'm just still in the mulling phase. I haven't talked to my agent about it. I haven't talked to anybody but my husband about it. So I'll let you know as soon as I have it. (laughs) Yeah. Are you thinking that you'll stay in like the 1930s or even the Hollywood area or maybe branch somewhere completely different? Yeah, I get, um, you know, I did three books in biblical and then the two set in 1930s. And I feel like I'm ready to go to another um, historical period. I do love the research part. And so it's kind of fun to jump into something new. So I can say that what I'm looking at is a 1950s time period. So and that's always a fun one, too. Yes, there's so much going on. And it's also so well documented and actually so close to where we are now, comparatively, that it's in some ways things that happened in the 50s are really closely connected to some things going on nowadays. Yeah. And you can still interview people that live through them. That's And that's part of what I want to do. Oh, this book so true. Because, um, it's really fun to have the, the actual voices of the people who experienced some of these events. And I'd love to have a, like real life interviews for some of these books. Well, for our listeners, Stephanie's been so gracious to offer a copy of Codename Edelweiss. To enter to win, just go to our website, historicalbookworm.com and click on the giveaways tab. You can also find the link for our giveaway in the show notes for this episode. And Stephanie, where can our listeners connect with you? You can find me at stephanielansom.com. And I love to have people sign up for my newsletter, which is called the Historical Readers Society. I have a lot of fun with the newsletter and I give away a book every month. Usually it's historical fiction or Christian historical fiction that I've read and loved. So I like passing my books on to my to my historical readers society. So please go ahead and sign up. You can find sign up on stephanielansom.com. Now for a pinch of the past. For today's pinch of the past, I have picked up my trusty book, A Dictionary of Chivalry, and dug up a few little medieval oddities that I thought it might be fun to share with you guys. Oh, I'm excited. There is something just so romantic and a little scary about the medieval time period. There really is when you think about how much of their society was kind of built around war and the defense of your home against a potential war coming. It kind of is, which also makes for a great conflict when it comes to stories and things like that. But of course, they were also like any other culture and they had their things that made sense in their culture, but we kind of look back and we're like, that seems a little strange. So the first one I'm bringing up is dog armor. They apparently made armor for their dogs. Okay. I can actually see that though. Like that makes a lot of sense. I know some of the dogs in the military now wear something at least over their back at times. And then my husband was telling me yesterday, cause I recorded the pinch of the past on world war two dogs. And he was saying that they put like titanium teeth in some of the dogs in the military now. So I could definitely see making your dog more war worthy, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, when you stop and think about it, it does kind of make sense. I mean, horses wore armor to battle 
And apparently the Mastiff in particular is recorded as going into battle with the English. Now, some people say that dogs may have worn some light armor when they were hunting as well, when you consider they were hunting boars, stags, sometimes wolves, it would make sense. But there is a legend that in 1415, at the Battle of Agincourt, English knight Sir Piers Ley had a female mastiff with him. And when he fell on the battlefield, she stood over him and prevented the French soldiers from taking him prisoner or just dispatching him. He was eventually rescued. Unfortunately, he died from his wounds in Paris, but his faithful mastiff lived and went home to his land, Lime Hall, and she had puppies and eventually contributed to the famous Lime Hall strain of Mastiffs. Well, that's amazing. And I'm not at all surprised. Dogs are just, once they're attached to their owner, they're very loyal. Yes. And I think, like you mentioned, the military dogs we have today, we do think about canine units that the police have and the military dogs. So it kind of makes sense that, of course, in the Middle Ages, yeah, they would be using military dogs as well. Okay, so the second thing I found is the snout-faced bassinet, also called the pig-faced bassinet. Well, like a bassinet like that you put a baby in? No, a bassinet (laughs) as in a helmet. Oh, sorry. (laughs) No, you're good. You're good. That's hilarious. I hadn't even thought of that, but how words change, you know, over the years. Maybe we call it a baby bassinet because it looks like an upside-down helmet. I don't know. But... The bassinet is kind of a lighter helmet than like a full great helm, but it was originally open and eventually it got a visor, but this visor had kind of an elongated nose and it was supposedly, you know, more aerodynamic for riding on horseback to have the nose of the helmet come to a point. And it might also encourage a lance to slide off. But from about 1370 to 1430, it was in use in in Germany and England. And of course, this is the Middle Ages. It, It would have spread to before and after that. In German, it was called a dog's hood. And the name snout faced or pig faced wasn't actually used in the Middle Ages. That comes from Victorian England when they were looking back on it. That's what they decided to name that helmet. Yeah, a little critically looking back at bygone fashions, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. We love to make fun of what people did before us, you know. So it's nice to know that while we're over here making fun of Victorian hoop skirts, they were making fun of medieval Mm -hmm. helmets. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And the last thing we have is the cockatrice. This was a mythical beast that is sometimes found in heraldry. So like, you know, on your shield or on your pennant, it would have been kind of your mark or your symbol. And it actually dates from ancient Greece and Rome, but it kind of came into more popularity as well during the Middle Ages. This beast, it supposedly comes from a cock's egg that is hatched by a reptile. So it comes out kind of like half serpent, half rooster, and it had like barbs on its wings, spurs on its legs, and a spiked tail. And this thing was even better than a dragon. A dragon can breathe fire. The cockatrice, all it has to do is look or just breathe on an animal, a plant, any kind of animal, and they die. Like, just with its look, it could kill. I wonder how that speaks to kind of like the psyche of the day. Like, we see all these battles and men going to war. But if they're wanting to just, like, look at something and not have to fight and it just, it's over with... I just wonder mm. what someone was thinking when they drew right, that Right, right, exactly. Well, and it would also represent like 
a very powerful being. So if you're going to choose that for your heraldry, then you're definitely making a statement that you're willing to take on any kind of challenge. Now, interestingly, the cockatrice had two weaknesses. One was supposedly the weasel, which according to legend had a venom that could kill the cockatrice. And the other was a cock's crow. If a cockatrice heard a cock crow, then they would die shortly after. So if there was an area of land and travelers were expecting to possibly meet a cockatrice, like I wonder who saw one to say that the land was infested with them. But travelers would actually take roosters with them so that supposedly, you know, the roosters would be crowing as they went along their journey and would be killing or warding off any cockatrices who might be in the area. That's kind of funny, just looking back. I know, because it's supposed to like come from a cock's egg. So somehow a cock's crow is going to be its downfall. I don't know. I just found that really funny. I was like, people come up with the funniest stories. Well, I hope y'all have enjoyed this this look at the Middle Ages. Last time I took you to the defense of a castle. So hopefully this one made you laugh a little bit more. Time for our bookworm review. Yesterday's Tides by Rosanna M. White. In 1942, Evie Farrow is used to life on Ocracoke Island, where every day is the same, until the German U-boats haunting their waters begin to wreak havoc. And when Special Agent Sterling Bertrand is washed ashore at Evie's Inn, her life is turned upside down. While Sterling's injuries keep him inbound for weeks, making him even more anxious about the man he's tracking, he becomes increasingly intrigued by Evie, who seems to be hiding secrets of her own. Decades earlier, in 1914, Englishman Remington Colbreth arrives at the Ocracoke Inn for the summer, but he doesn't count on falling in love with Louisa Adair, the innkeeper's daughter. When war breaks out in Europe and their relationship is put in jeopardy, will their love survive? As Evie and Sterling work to track down an elusive German agent, they unravel mysteries that go back a generation. The ripples from the Great War are still rocking their lives, and it seems yesterday's tides may sweep them all into danger again today. Best-selling and award-winning author Rosanna M. White whisks you away to two periods fraught with peril in this sweeping and romantic jewel-time tale. Hello, dearies. This is Angela Bell, bringing you today's Bookworm Review. You can connect with me on my website, authorangelabell.com. Emotional. Poignant. Riveting. Yesterday's Tides is a sweeping historical drama brimming with espionage and romance. Thoroughly researched and beautifully crafted, this novel is one to be savored. One enlivened by a cast of diverse characters who move the heart, and enriched by profound spiritual themes that uplift the soul. For the longtime fan of Rosanna M. White, Yesterday's Tides is a must-read filled with delightful cameos by beloved characters from series past. For the reader who's yet to pick up one of White's novels, Yesterday's Tides serves as a marvelous introduction to her work, sure to result in the binge reading of her phenomenal backlist. If you enjoy period dramas set in the First and Second World Wars, Yesterday's Tides is sure to be your cup of tea. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.